I want to say thank you. Uh, before we start, I want to say thank you for uh, the care that you have shown to my family this week. Uh, for those of you who didn't know, my father-in-law died early on Thursday morning, and because it had been quite a struggle getting to this point, and family members from out of town, we actually had his burial at the National Military Cemetery on Friday, just a day later, and we had his memorial yesterday, but it's just been a, a whirlwind of a week, and the cards, the, the emails, the messages posted, the calls I got just out of this world, so thank you very much. Uh, my, my family greatly appreciates it. We're going to read from um, Mark's Gospel this morning, two paragraphs, same chapter. I'll explain why we're doing it this way in a, in a moment, but we're going to read verses 14 to 20 and verses 29 to 34 of chapter 1. And since we're reading from the Gospels and we're starting a new series, I'd like to ask you to read this with me. Here's the Gospel of God. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into their lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James and Zebedee and his brother John in the boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went up to her, took her hand, and helped her up, and the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Let me ask you a question before I launch into a prayer. Uh, a month ago or so, we introduced this concept, who's your one? That wasn't just about Christmas, inviting people for Christmas, but really trying to stir up our collective heart for uh, other people. Who has God put on your mind who either does not yet have a relationship with the Lord, needs to make a breakthrough, or that the Spirit of God has been prompting you to invite either to church or into your journey with God in some way. Who's in your mind? We're going to stop and pray for those people right now. Lord God, we pray for the one that you've put on each of our hearts. And we pray that you will use us, use our kindness, Use the growth that they're able to see in us. Use our patience. Use our love. In the right time, create opportunities where you can use our words too. And we pray that there would be a spiritual breakthrough in each of their lives where they'd move forward or they'd break out of the strongholds that hold them back or that they would come to know you completely. And we pray that in the right time and the right way, you will break through into each of their lives and surround them with your grace, mercy, love, and peace. In Jesus' name. And now, Lord, we pray for us as a congregation. We pray that as we dive into this text, 
from the Gospels that you'll give us understanding and that as we wrestle with your word and consider its implications on us, that you will further your work in growing us to be the people you want us to become, that we will become more like Jesus in our thoughts, in our attitudes, that you'll slow us down, keep us from being as reactionary as so many voices in our culture are, Help us to hear what Jesus would think or say in each situation. We pray for your wisdom. We pray for your truth to dominate and to rule over the impulsiveness of my life and our lives. And we pray that you would use us to accomplish your will in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Question for you. Do you remember where this particular line comes from? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Anybody know? Who wrote it? Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. Anybody read that? One of my favorite books. The last time I read that book, I read a bulk of it while we were on a trip in London, and I finished it when we were in Paris, which is very significant because it's about events that were happening in those two cities back in the 1700s. The fuller context of that quote reads this way. It's actually much, much richer. This is one long sentence. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the season of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. I don't know if you're ever taking a writing class, but any writer worth your salt would say, never ever write a long run-on sentence. This is the longest run-on sentence I've ever encountered in my life, and yet it's in one of the greatest novels that has ever been written. Charles Dickens was referring to 1775 as the French Revolution shook the world with both its glories and its grotesque excesses. And Dickens wrote these words in 1859 while his subject matter focused on the best or the worst of times in 1775, his main point in that paragraph was that his day could be viewed in that same way. And he seems to be telling us that in every age we have these extremes going on around us, both the best and the worst of what life can throw at us. Does that make sense? So in a sense, that opening line, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times, is about the past, 1775, but it resonates because it's about our day too. Good beginnings are memorable. The reason why that opening part of that paragraph is so often quoted by writers and playwrights and shows up in movies and in other books is because it's such a memorable term that sticks with our experience in life. And it raises a question. How would you begin a history-changing mission 
of hope to the world. I ask that because this morning, on this first Sunday of the year, we're beginning a new series from the Gospel of Mark. And this is going to be more or less a blitz through Mark. Uh, We're going to do it between now and Easter. And so I'm going to give you a challenge for as many of you who are willing. And maybe if you haven't been a Bible reader, this would be a great way to start. To read one chapter of the Gospel of Mark every week from now, this week, through Easter Sunday. Only you have to take two chapters the last week because... We're going to do Good Friday, chapter 15, Easter, the resurrection, chapter 16. Okay, so we've got 15 weeks instead of 16 to do this. And what you will gain is a sense of the flow of the ministry years of Jesus and of the passion that grows toward that moment. Now, it's going to be a little bit different from some other series that we've done where we go straight through a book of the Bible in that we're not going to hit every single verse and every single paragraph. What I'm going to try to do is grab one central section from the middle of each of those chapters and tell the story of the whole chapter by focusing on a primary section. Does that make sense with you? Then for those small groups that are tracking with us, they'll have the opportunity to dig down deeper later that week and look at the rest of it. So our focus this morning is on Mark chapter 1, where our journey with Jesus begins. Here's the main idea that I want to get across. This is the time to follow the clear, authoritative call of Jesus. Now, today, is the time to understand and follow the clear, authoritative call of Jesus in our lives. So in Mark chapter 1, the journey begins four lessons that I learned this week as I was working my way through this. The first is that timing is important. Sometimes we don't think about that in terms of God or in terms of ministry, but timing is important. Here's where this comes from. Verse 14 says, after John was put in prison, then Jesus went into Galilee. You may not have thought about it this way, but even Jesus depended on timing and preparation in his public ministry. Many people have a tendency to think that ministry is simply a matter of doing the right things. If we do the right things, the right outcome will happen. And yet that's not always true in life. Sometimes you can do the right things, but if you do them at the wrong time, your best efforts fall short. So the beginning of Jesus' public ministry was not launched in a vacuum, but it was launched in the midst of a sequence of things that tell us that God the Father had already been at work within human history, making the timing just right. Let me lay out for you four factors that show up in this chapter before we get to what we just read. The first is the ministry of preparation by John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was sent to fulfill a prophetic calling to prepare the way for the one who was coming to bring the good news of God into the world. The second factor was the baptism of Jesus. It's described very, very briefly here, but John began baptizing people and they were repenting for their sins, meaning they wanted to have a change of mind that led into a change of action. And he surprised Jesus when Jesus comes and asks him to baptize him. One of the other gospels gives a fuller description and John actually protests and says, no, I I should not be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. I'm not even worthy to untie your shoes. And Jesus says, no, no, no. It's absolutely essential that you do this. Stop for a minute. One of the questions that often comes is, well, why was Jesus being baptized? When, When we're baptized, what we're acknowledging is that we're sinners We're not the worst we can possibly be, but there's parts of our lives that we can't fix by ourselves, 
And so we're confessing that to God and we're asking for his grace and it, it, it's all a sign and a symbol that reveals some of that. So as if to say that it takes Jesus' death when represented by us going under the water to die to the old nature and we're being raised up into a new nature. We need this new power from God that, that he gives us. All that's symbolized in baptism. So why was Jesus baptized? First reason is to set an example for the rest of us because he was going to ask all of us to be baptized in his name even though he didn't have to be. Second though is that in the Old Testament buried in the midst of all the laws and the prophecies and things like that there there was a requirement for the high priest. A high priest had to be at least 30 years of age and they had to go through a ritual washing When they translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek, that was called the Septuagint, and it was probably the Bible that Jesus and the disciples read. It was called the Septuagint because it refers to 70 scholars who worked together on that project. They took that word that was in the Old Testament Hebrew for washing, and the closest uh, word in in the Greek language for it was the word baptizo, that we get baptism from. So it's saying, This person had to be baptized at least at the age of 30 before they could serve as a high priest. All that starts to connect when we read some of the letters in the New Testament, like the letter to the Hebrew Christians that said that Jesus is the ultimate high priest who once for all time offered his own life as a sacrifice for sins. He was both the high priest and the sacrifice in that moment. And before even entering into that role, he made sure he fulfilled every expectation that was set forth in the Old Testament. So four factors. The first is the ministry and preparation of John the Baptist. The second is the baptism of Jesus. The third that comes right before the passage we read is the testing of Jesus in the wilderness where he was tempted. And the fourth is what we're told here at the outset of verse 14 that John the Baptist had now been put in prison. And then Jesus' ministry begins to move forward question. As we're looking at this and we're seeing how God was already at work behind the scenes before Jesus ever uttered a word in ministry, I want to ask this question. How has God been at work in your life? Do you have a sense of God's timing in regard to your exposure to the good news of Christ? When did that happen in your life? Or is that all a new experience where it's beginning to happen now for you? When did God begin to break through to you in a way where his truth and his words became real rather than just an exercise you have to do when you show up at church and kind of check off that box on your to-do list? When I read these notes about timing as I was working through this passage of Scripture this week, I began to think of the Apostle Paul's comment in Romans 5, verse 6 that says that Christ died for us at just the right time. Wow. God has this amazing sense of timing that is very different from my understanding or your understanding. And at just the right time, he accomplished the most important event that ever happened in history, which is bringing Jesus into the world and the public ministry of Jesus, which was for all of our benefits. God has a sense of timing, and timing is important. Here's a second discovery for me. Clarity matters. Clarity 
matters. We talk about clarity around here from time to time. We talk about clarity in terms of our vision. We need to understand what we're doing and why and break that down in simple terms and, and try to share that vision across the board so that people know what our church is about and, and what we are trying to accomplish together. And the more they're clear that we are about our vision, the more people can get on board and say, yes, I'm with this, there's a role for me, or, or no, I think you guys are nuts, I want nothing to do with you. But the more we are clear about that, it creates avenues for other people to say, I get it. I, I'm on board. I, this is what God is doing here. Verse 14 and now into verse 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So notice that Mark turns our attention to this announcement that comes from Jesus. This announcement comes with great clarity. Jesus came for one specific reason, to deliver good news. Notice that Jesus starts his ministry, this is his first spoken word in John's gospel, he starts his ministry with this simple, unmistakable act of clarity. Okay, where do we see the clarity? It's in the words that are chosen here. The good news of God. Now, in the Greek language, it's, it's the, the word euangelion. It's also the word that you see at the top of the page that says the gospel of Mark or the gospel of Matthew or the, the gospel of Luke. That term, euangelion, can be either interpreted as good news in a general sense or the gospel of something. The word gospel, which you probably used a number of times, always means good news. But prior to the time of Jesus, that term did not have a specific religious significance. It was a term that anybody could have used for any kind of good news. After the Gospels were written, that all changed because people in the world, wherever the Gospel was going, began to associate that word not just as some generic good news, but the specific good news of God that centers on Jesus. And it gained such religious significance that by the time that Paul writes his letter to the Romans about 30 years later, 20 years later, more like, he begins by saying, this is the gospel of God. And that phrase that he uses, gospel of God, are the same words that are used here in Mark's gospel to say the good news of God. As if to say, this isn't just my gospel or my opinion or what I think. This is the ultimate, true, historic never-changing gospel of God. It's an authoritative statement. And Jesus was the first who came making that declaration. Sometimes we use that word gospel today to mean uh, there's some body of truth that's the recognized authoritative best of subject. So you might read a book on computers and it's the gospel of Apple computers or something like that. It's not as authoritative. It's going to change in another month. The gospel of God is the historic work of God that he has done in Christ. Now, there are three parts to this proclamation that Jesus makes. Here's number one. The time has come. Right now, you're in it, he says to his audience. Number two, the kingdom of God has come near. We get that. We just celebrated Christmas. And one of the names or titles that Jesus was given that we celebrate every Christmas is Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? You got it. Excellent. So Jesus is announcing as he moves into his ministry years at the age of 30, 
what had been promised and prophesied at the time of his birth 30 years before that God has come near. God is with us. And now he's announcing the kingdom of God has come near. The reason is because Jesus was beginning to proclaim the good news of God. And the third component of that proclamation is the specific action that he calls for to repent and to believe the good news. Okay, so repentance is one of those churches you only, or words that you only hear in churches, said it backwards. Um, and we get scared about that sometimes. Repentance does not mean grovel and say, I'm not worthy of anything, I'm a worm. That's not what it means. Repent literally means to have a change of mind that results in a new track record of action or a new direction of action. I love that. It pictures a 180 degree turn. Not a 360, you're just turning in circles when you do that. But, uh, but we call that in Massachusetts uh, a UE, right? So it's a spiritual act of banging a UE. <laughs> Repent, that's what it means. That's a good concept, isn't it? When you realize you're headed in the wrong direction, you're embracing a wrong, harmful, or destructive, or spiritually toxic behavior, and you repent of that, you're saying, I'm wrong, I'm headed in the wrong direction, I'm gonna abandon this plan, I'm gonna go in the opposite direction. Oh, this is better. That's what repenting means. And to believe means that you trust what God has said about this and put your faith in that. These three elements of the gospel remind us that there is still a role for propositional truth. In our day, we too often hear, Christianity needs to be caught more than taught. You ever heard that? I bet you have. Now, there's a truth to it. Christianity does need to be caught. And very often it is caught as you watch the life of somebody else, you watch faith being lived out. But here's the problem. If we only work through that mode and we separate that from the teaching or propositional truth mode, we don't understand what we're seeing. At some point, the words have to enter where truth comes in and we say, that's why this person has changed so radically. That's why this person feels like they are forgiven and there's a whole new lease on life. Oh, Jesus has come in and the Holy Spirit has begun to change that person from the inside out. Boy, I wish I could experience that too. You see how they work together? If we only looked at the caught side, seeing it and never hearing about it, we fail to understand the core of what it's all about. However, if we only focus on the taught side and we don't live it out, we have a faith that's all talk and no action and that's just as toxic. It's the balance of how they fit together. Propositional truth still matters, but what Jesus was looking for is propositional truth lived out in a daily experience by you and me. That's good stuff, isn't it? And so Jesus' ministry began with propositional truth and then was backed up by his actions. Here's our big idea. This is the time to follow the clear authoritative call of Jesus now. Here's my third observation this week. Jesus' call to follow is clear. He calls us to follow and it's very, very clear. Look at verses 16, 17, and 18. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, this is the one who becomes known as Peter, that's a nickname, Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. So as soon as Jesus begins to declare the coming of the kingdom of God, 
the very next thing he does is he calls people to follow him and to enter into that ministry with him. In doing so, he used the words and the patterns of the rabbis of his day. The call to follow him was something that these common men, and we read that these four, Peter and Andrew, James and John, were all fishermen. These are words they never thought they would hear apply, applied to their own lives. It was called the call of the rabbi. Now, what had happened in village after village, the local rabbi, who was usually the most well-taught, most educated person in that town, would take all the little boys, sometimes the little girls, and they would start together, and they would memorize huge portions of the Old Testament, and he would teach them. And then they would take the best of each group at a certain point, and he'd weed out all the others. He'd take the best, and they would go on to more difficult things. But with the first group, he'd say, go ply your trade, which meant... Go back to your home, and whatever your dad does, you become an apprentice to dad, but I'm going to take these people further. And eventually, they'd get to the end of the process, and the few who are left at the end, the, the rabbi would say, come follow me, which means come and live the same life that I'm living. I think you're worthy of taking over my role someday. You can do the same thing. Why is that significant? We read that Peter and Andrew, James and John were all fishermen, which meant that they had heard the words of some other rabbi at some point in their lives who had said, go home, ply your trade. This isn't the life for you. And it was every Jewish mother's hope that her son would come home one day and say, you're not going to believe what the rabbi said. The rabbi said, come follow me. And imagine, these guys are grown men. They're working in dad's fishing industry. Imagine the talk the next day all around town when it gets out. You know that new rabbi, the one that everybody's talking about? The new rabbi who's not like all the old rabbis? He said to my son, come follow me. That got a lot of attention. And it changed their lives. And Jesus calls like that. So he called Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, and then he called James and John. These were two sets of brothers who lived and worked in the city of Capernaum, which was on the Sea of Galilee. It was a fishing town. And it's interesting that these first four disciples were all fishermen. And so Jesus promises to make them fishers of men and women if they followed him. What was he doing there? He was speaking their language. He wasn't speaking above them. He was speaking in ways that they would instantly understand and saying, I'm going to speak within the career that you already have. You think it's a big deal that you make your living by throwing out nets and catching fish, but from now on, you're going to throw out words and actions, and you're going to catch people who are going to sign on to what God is doing in the world. Think of that illustration of fishing. I'm a terrible fisherman. I was never any good at it. One thing I learned about fishing, though, is you have to sit there and you cast out your line and you get nothing and you roll it back in and you cast it. Very rarely do you get a hit on the first one, unless you're my brother. He's always sitting beside me and he throws it in and boom, they bite. And I don't. Same thing with the nets. They throw the nets over, and sometimes nothing happens. Do you remember the scene when Jesus is talking with Peter? He says, oh, Peter, let out a little bit farther, and, and I want you to cast your net in one more time. And Peter says, Lord, you don't understand. I'm a fisherman. I know these waters. We've been fishing all night long. We caught nothing. Cast after cast. Jesus, just humor me. Go out one more time, a little bit farther. Throw your net over the other side. He says, all right, Lord, because you said so, I will. And Peter throws the net over, and they can hardly bring it in because it's so full of fish. 
So that's what evangelism is. Evangelism is about speaking truth to people, and sometimes people don't respond. But you gotta keep doing it over and over again. You gotta share the gospel a number of times, not to beat people up with it, not to shove it down their throats, but finding creative ways to say, have you thought more about that? Invite them into the conversation, and every once in a while somebody says, you know, there's something that happened in my life, and I wanna know more about this because something's stirred up inside of me. And you cast the net one more time, and not like they're caught, but they're drawn in. And that's the image that Jesus was using here. Twice, Mark tells us that these men then left their fathers and they followed Jesus. First Peter and Andrew, then James and John. Matthew and Luke provide some other details about all that. But Mark seems to want us to notice the immediacy of their response, that when people hear it in a way that finally breaks through by the Spirit of God, the response is surprising and quick and life-changing. When Jesus calls you to follow, he will often call you to leave something behind. In this case, he called these four to leave behind their fishing careers. In order to become part of his full-time team, they would travel with him for the next three years, and then after Jesus left, they would take over and they would change the world. Today, you may be involved in some behavior or pattern or an addiction that needs to be left behind for you to fully follow Jesus or to fully experience the joy in life and the power in life that he really wants you to know. It might be something else that he calls you to leave behind in order to follow him in a very specific way. I had a guy who said to me on the way out this morning, he said, I hate it when you do that. I said, what? He said, you challenged me. I said, I challenge every Sunday. I've been doing that for 30 years. He said, yeah, but I think God's telling me there's something I'm supposed to give up. I said, well, do it. <laughs> it won't feel so bad once you do it. <laughs> this is the time to follow the clear, authoritative call of Jesus. Now, at the end of this service, I want to tell you what's coming. We're going to baptize a couple of people. Following Jesus in baptism is an act of one who has heard the call to follow Jesus in a specific way. In this case, what these folks are doing is identifying with him, and they're saying, he's brought change into my life. They're not saying I'm perfect. They're not saying I'm the completed project here, but I recognize he's washed away my sins, and he's raised me up into a, a new perspective on life, a new experience of life, and it's all by the grace of Jesus. Do you hear Jesus' call? Is there something he's calling you to do or to take on or to give up or a step that he's calling you to take next? Do it. Take it. And then one last observation. Here in this same chapter, his authority was established. Verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and, and, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went up to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. So here's what's going on. Jesus' authority was established through his healing ministry. I'm aware that some people get confused and uncomfortable when we talk about his healing ministry, and yet we want that at times too. So, some thoughts about the healing ministry of Jesus. The healing ministry of Jesus began with Peter's mother-in-law. We're not told the reason for her fever, only that she had a fever. There's an Anglican pastor, Alvin Lewis, who 
uh, notes that the, a Mayo Clinic website has listed a number of things that could possibly cause one to run a fever, like a virus, a bacterial infection, heat exhaustion, extreme sunburn, I've had that, rheumatoid arthritis, a malignant tumor, tetanus vaccine rejection, or drugs that are used to treat high blood pressure. There are probably some more reasons too, but all those can cause a fever. We're not told exactly what the cause of this fever was, but we are told that when Jesus took her hand, the fever left her, and she got up and began to serve other people, and the news got out all through that town. So some thoughts about the healing ministry of Jesus are in order. This also comes from Alvin Lewis. First, the healing ministry of Jesus does not rule out the use of doctors or medicine. Every once in a while, you will find a Christian or somebody from another religion who says, it's wrong to go to the doctor or it's wrong to take medicine. God's going to heal me. I'm convinced that he's going to do it all by his power, and therefore it's wrong if I take that. You will never hear that kind of teaching here. You never hear it from Jesus. In fact, one of the guys who writes one of these gospels is a medical doctor. And he builds into one of his parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, this guy who takes his own money and after doing some basic first aid to this guy he finds all beat up in the street, he pays somebody else to take care of him. Jesus is clearly expecting that there is this blend between doing the obvious things that are part of the discoveries of this world while at the same time praying for healing from God. Second thought, the healing ministry of Jesus is never permanent. Every single person who's recorded in the Gospels who was healed by Jesus eventually dies. Even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead four days after he died, eventually he dies again, and this time he dies. The healing isn't permanent. And third, the healing ministry of Jesus is always selective. There are some Christian teachers out there who insist that Jesus heals every malady if you have enough faith or if you say the right words in the right kind of prayer. You know what that does? It puts the pressure on you. If you haven't been healed and there's something going on in your life, it's your fault, it's my fault. Jesus doesn't do that either. But think of some of the scenes where he healed somebody. In this first case, he heals Peter's mother-in-law and then people come to him all night long and he's healing left and right. But the first thing that happens the next day in the morning is he goes off to a solitary place to pray because he's wiped out and he's exhausted and people are still looking for him. They're still bringing all these more people to be healed and, and he doesn't come back to that town. He has to bring the gospel to the next town. So the healing was meant to draw people to understand his his authority, not to give them the false promise that he would heal every possible malady that comes. Think of another scene. In John chapter 5, he heals a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. He's sitting by the pool, and there's a tradition that if the water stirs in the pool, the first one in will get healed by some mystical power. Jesus heals that one guy, but not all the other people sitting around the pool. The historians tell us that there were probably hundreds of people that day on that same pool, but only this one guy gets healed. It's always selective. And sometimes we get frustrated because we don't always understand why does God heal one thing and not heal another thing? And we enter into the mystery. And I think that's where he wants us. What I tell people is when we are asked to pray for somebody for healing, that we should certainly do it. When we're asked to anoint somebody with oil, we should certainly do it. But when we do, we enter into the mystery of how God operates. Sometimes what God wants to do 
is to create more of an awareness in us of his power. Sometimes God will break through and there are answers that happen in a very short period of time. Sometimes what God is saying is not yet. Something else I want to do in your life. Yesterday I I spoke about my father-in-law at his memorial service. And uh, one of the things that I mentioned was that I'd gone on a number of adventures with my father-in-law. Those of you who've been around here long, and if you know some of those stories, you're tired of them. I I get it. But we had one more adventure that we were planning. We'd gone on these World War II trips together. We'd we'd visited nine different countries going to uh, World War II sites over, over the years. And we had one more trip that was supposed to happen this past October to London. And uh, about three or four weeks before we were supposed to go, he realized that his health was not improving enough, and he said, I I can't go. I've got to pull the plug on the trip. So we never went. And it was a big disappointment to him. And the other guys that we were going with, we'd done these tours to various places, and they said, well, if Bud's not going, I'm not going either. He was at the center of it all. Cool thing about my father-in-law. So part of what I said yesterday was my father-in-law was very, very frustrated for the past few months because he wasn't getting better and he wanted to go on these adventures and he was wondering, where is God when this isn't happening? And he's a great believer in God. And it said it hit me when he died early on Thursday morning that God had prepared him for a different adventure. I just can't go on this one with him. But one day I will and there are adventures yet to come. And sometimes it takes that kind of understanding for us to realize God is up to something else when he says no to the expectations that we have right now. Does that make sense to you? And we enter into the mystery, and he wants us to enter into the mystery because when we do that, we realize that we are humble and he is God and we submit to his plan even if we don't understand it. This is the time to follow the clear, authoritative call of God now. Let me pray, and then we're going to um, baptize two people, Joanne and, and Greg, and I'm kind of thrilled about all this. Father God, thank you for the opportunity we have here to learn more, to wrestle deeply with your word, and sometimes to declutter our religious experience so that we make it as clear and full of clarity as Jesus did. So guide each of us in the right way in the right time in coming to that decision to fully, freely follow you. Guide these folks who are taking this step in the next few moments and encourage them through this and encourage the whole church. In Jesus' name, amen.